before you again to ask that you speak to us right now through your word. That you reveal things about us, about what's going on in our hearts, about our lives as followers. So that we'll have a closer relationship with you. So that we'll understand you more. And so you'll transform us more into the likeness of Christ. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for everything that you've given us through the through your word. I pray that you just become alive right now. That this doesn't become another regular, typical reading and but that it will, the words will be planted deep within our hearts. May you just stick with us, Lord. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, Lord. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. I saw this picture here, and I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good picture. Um, it reminded me, as a kid, I really, one of the things I really liked was superheroes. You know, I, um, two in particular was Superman and Batman. I liked the whole fact of, of their secret identity that out in public they were one person, but in private they were another person. Um, and there was a time where I, I just, that's what I wanted to be. But as I got older and I started understanding things more, as my brain started developing, you know, I started reading more and I started, um, I don't know, I started looking more into uh, these superheroes. And I remember one time reading that I'm reading something about how these superheroes, like Batman and, and, and Superman in particular, um, if they were real figures, they would be phonies. And yeah, they had the, all these superpowers, but if they had really been honest with themselves and true to themselves, they would have been comfortable with who they, who they are. You know, we see certain superheroes that, that other superheroes are like that, you know, Iron Man. He revealed who he was, and everyone knew who he was. He was Iron Man, and um, the name slips my mind. What was his name again? Um, huh? Stark. Um, what's his first name? Tony. Tony Stark. Yeah. So everyone knew who he was. Now that's I, you know, that's what I think is a genuine person. Um, so what we see, you know, that what I want to, how do I want to tie that into our Bible study is that what we see here, what we're going to learn about here is that that's what happens, I think, within the church. That's what happens. We have one person that is here sitting or in any, sitting down in any church, but outside the walls of the church, they're a totally different person. 
and even to go a little bit further than that, they worship God and they pray, but their hearts are far from God. They think that there's people that think that just by coming to church or doing certain things or being involved, that makes them a follower and they're, and they're doing the right thing and, and that's, that alone is going to get them into a right relationship with the Lord. But what God does is that he looks into the heart. He wants to see what's going on in your heart. This morning we're going to be looking at a portion of scripture where Jesus Christ exposes the hypocrisy of self-righteous attitudes, of self-righteous attitudes and behaviors. And what we also see is that how Jesus teaches us about where true, true purity comes from and how it's revealed in our lives. By the time we end here, by the time we're done, I really hope that my prayer and hope is that, that the Holy Spirit will use this passage to reveal to you the contents of your own heart. That he'll reveal to you exactly what's going on in your heart and show you that purity isn't from the outside, from the outside in, but it's from the inside out. So we're going to be in, in uh, Mark chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 7. I believe it's in either 556 five, in the Bibles there or, or 557. Five, and like always, um, I broke it up into, into, into pieces. I'll be reading it and stopping and then talking about what that particular section shows us. So we're again, we're, we're starting Mark chapter 7, and we'll be in, starting in verse 1. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there were many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dinner couches. Then the, then the Pharisees and scribes asked, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition and elders, instead eating with eating bread with ritually unclean hands. The last time we saw a delegation of religious Jews come from Jerusalem was back all the way in Mark chapter 3. That first group, if you remember, came and accused Jesus of being possessed by Satan and was driving out demons by the ruler of demons. And if you remember, Jesus responded by explaining how their accusations were completely senseless and totally irrational. Now it appears this new delegation had come from Jerusalem to investigate further, to find out more about Jesus. Unfortunately, what we, what we come to find out that it was impossible for these devout religious men to be completely objective for at least a couple of reasons. 
The first reason is they had already arrived with preconceived notions, preconceived opinions about what they had heard about Jesus, and were only looking to confirm these, these, these opinions. And every opinion or judgment they made was always weighed against their Jewish customs and traditions, their oral laws. Now during this time, um, and even to this day, you ha the Jews follow the oral law. There's an oral law and a written law. The oral law is what, um, the written law is, is everything written in the Old Testament, the, in, in the Levitical law, Le Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, um, all those commands that came from God, that's the written law. But what happened is that there's also a, an oral law. These are traditions that these religious Jews, Old Testament scribes and, and leaders came up to, um, to kind of expand or explain a little bit further what those laws meant. So every, like I said, every opinion and judgment they made was weighed against their Jewish customs and traditions, that is their oral law, rather than what God actually said in the scriptures, that is the written law. In all reality, they were looking for anything that told them that Jesus and his, and his followers weren't falling in line with how things were supposed to be. They were looking for, for ways and anything that's going to tell them, you know what, you're not doing what the oral law says, you're not doing what, you know, what we've been following, your traditions, you know, and that's what they were purposely looking for. They weren't looking to see what Jesus had to say and whether it aligned with scripture or not. They were just looking for something to accuse them, accuse Jesus and disciples with. And you know, as soon as they did, and it didn't take long, I don't think it really took long, as soon as they did, they were really quick to jump on it. And what was it that they noticed? What was the offense? Was that the disciples were eating bread with dirty hands. Now, it wasn't, not in a filthy, dirty kind of a way. Yeah, their hands may have been like, you know, dirty. And we've seen as, you know, as parents, we've seen what dirty hands look like. And, you know, that's why we, sometimes we take the hand at time just to take our kids and wash their hands and, you know, um, but this wasn't, this was just more than that. What, what the thing was that they hadn't washed them in a proper ceremonial way. There was a ceremony, there was a certain way they had to wash their hands. Just to give you a little bit of a background, these religious leaders believe that there are a ton of ways that a Jew's hands could be defiled or could become unclean. For example, as a non-Jew, if I had touched a bowl or a spoon or even, even this table or a book or even a stone and later on one of these Jews touched it, basically they would become, they, they, it was, they were known, they considered themselves unclean. They believed that anything that they touched that had been touched previously by a Gentile or a non-Jew was defiled and so that if they, had, they touched it, they had become defiled. It was automatic. Even, even, if, even if they had just come back from washing their hands and cleaning it, just touching it once, they, they were defiled, they were unclean. So the belief was that any impurity could be transferred to food when it was held while it was, eat, while it was being eaten, thus making the whole person unclean. So do you understand what I mean? It's, 
because they now their their hands were dirty, the food they touched were dirty, and so as they ate it, their whole body became dirty. Everything about them became dirty. So now they were unclean. Now, according to Exodus chapter thirty and Deuteronomy twenty-one, there were actually there was actually a requirement. There was a requirement for priests and certain community leaders to perform a ceremonial washing on certain occasions and before entering the tabernacle. Now, if you don't know what the tabernacle was, it was a, basically a temple made of tents. It was back in the Old Testament. It's more complicated than that, and I hope that one day I'll be able to get into it. But um, there was a certain ceremonial wash they had to do. However, the written law never made it a requirement for the common Hebrew to do a ceremonial washing unless there was some kind of bodily discharge. Over time and over the centuries, Old Testament scribes began to interpret how to apply these ceremonial washings to everyday life for everybody, not just for the priests, not just for certain communities, but for everybody. So as the years went by, these practices became tradition, and these traditions became more important than what the written law actually had to say and what it required. So let me show you what it, let me try to explain to you what it looked like by the time of Jesus. And I had to look this up, and it's interesting. This is what a proper ceremonial wash would look like in the, type of, in the time of Jesus. Again, I'm talking about here washing of the hands. You'd have to take a special stone or a special vessel, and even and with that special ve- vessel, that had to be ceremonially cleaned and had to be ceremonially washed. Um, and then you had to pour water into it, because any old water, any old vessel might be unclean. That that itself might be unclean, and that won't work. Then you'd place some of this water into one and a half empty eggshells. Now, then, then you'd pour some of this water that was in those eggshells. And I, I, I'm thinking they would do it one at a time because kind of, it would be hard to, I would imagine it would be hard to do it when both hands are being washed or maybe somebody's helping. But you'd pour this water from each eggshell over your hands, starting at the fingertips, running all the way down your wrists. So this is what it would look, they would they'd pour this water, it would run down, down to their wrist, and afterwards, you'd cleanse each palm by rubbing the fist of the other hand into it. So this is, this is the manner in which they wash your hands. But that wasn't it. You'd think that they were done after that. Then finally, you'd have to pour water over your hands again, but this time, you'd do it the opposite way. And, and they'd have to do that, with, I would imagine, with each hand. And every time, this is every time they ate. This is every time they, they um, they sat together to, to have a meal together. So this is what the Pharisees and scribes were arguing with Jesus about in verse 5. Now it's easy for us to read verses like this. You know, I, I read verses like this and, and, and I think, man, these, these traditional ways of washing hands are ridiculous and bizarre. Really weird. But even today, I think in the 21st century, if you see some of the churches today and, and some of the Christian denominations, they still practice certain traditions that not only distinguish them from other denominations, but 
they practice traditions that they've been following of they've had since they, that, that denomination began. Now some of these customs and traditions may also seem ridiculous and bizarre to those who don't understand or are familiar with that denomination or with those denominational practices. You know, I've gone to, to different types of churches and have seen and I've seen how they do church. And for me, it's weird and it's odd because I'm not used to it. I'm not, I didn't grow up in that church and I didn't grow up um, doing things, doing church the way they do it. So if you guys go out there and you guys do visit or you are invited to a different church, you might see things that may seem strange because that's not how you grew up doing them and that's not how maybe how we do things. But nonetheless, you know, that's they're they're used to it because that's what they that's what they know, that's what their denomination practices. Now I believe there's nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having, keeping and maintaining certain traditional practices in the church, as long as the purpose of those practices, as long as those purposes are to glorify God and unite believers together. You see, one of the things that makes the universal church, and what I mean by the universal church is all the believers worldwide that are, make up the body of Christ. Every believer that accepted Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. That's what I mean as the universal church. But one of the things that makes the universal church so special is the diverse ways that, get, that God can be glorified by correctly practicing and applying traditions. For example, let me give you an example of what we do here. Although we're a young church, we just started, we practice the tradition of playing music and singing songs, you know, the lyrics, you know, basically playing the lyrics and songs of, of words and worshiping God that way. Whereas while some churches have the tradition of worshiping God using one or the other, and even some churches worship God with no music at all, with no music or lyrics. Now again, if you were to go into those churches, you may be like, hey, where's the songs? Where's the worship? Where's the, you know, but you'll see that, you know, they just, that's not how they do things. Now, another beneficial aspect of maintaining healthy traditions is that it unites believers together by maintaining a sense of familiarity and purpose. Another example. This church uh, has a traditional practice of teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line, precept by precept. That's the tradition that we have, and that's something that I believe is important um, in getting to know the Bible and getting to know what God has to say. But what this does is that it maintains familiarity because you know what to expect next week and the purpose is to learn the entire bible not just pieces of it now i don't want to say i don't want to say that a church that teaches topically or teaches um in that way is wrong they have that way and that's fine that that works for them but i think that when we teach the bible expositionally um we cover so much more material we cover things that are sometimes uncomfortable you know for even for maybe uncomfortable for me to, to study and to discuss. You know, it doesn't give me, it, I'm not giving an excuse to skip it. 
you know, I have to go through it. But also, like I said, you know what to expect. You're not caught by surprise. Oh, hey, the, that pastor, I, today he's talking about tithing. He's talking about, you know, giving. And, and I haven't given in three weeks and, and four weeks. Or, and now I feel completely guilty. No, it's, you know, it's not that. You know, I mean, and again, I said there's nothing wrong with that. But you know what to expect when we teach verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Now, on the other hand, there are two main dangers in keeping and maintaining church traditions. And it's what we see in these, in these five verses and what we see the Pharisees and these scribes doing. The first danger was when the church, when church customs and traditions disregard and invalidate the word of God. Or in other words, when these traditions become equal to or greater than what the Bible actually says. For example, there are some churches that maintain the tradition of kneeling and praying to images of dead saints. When God strictly prohibits this in Exodus 23 to 5. The second danger is when a person believes that upholding church traditions is more important than obeying and following the word of God. Now this would be, another, this would be an example of this. If someone came here to this church and, and sat through the service and afterwards took me aside and said and, and rebuked me because I wasn't teaching from the King James Version or I wasn't wearing a three-piece uh, three suit and they just went at me. They just you know, started going off on me because I'm not doing things that certain way. But they haven't paid attention to see if what I'm teaching is correct. They haven't, been, they don't pay, they haven't paid attention to see if my heart is far from the Lord and whether I'm just speaking out of, you know, that I don't know, basically speaking about what I'm not, or don't know what I'm talking about. And there's, there's actually people out there. There's people out there that, actually, that will make an argument for teaching from a certain Bible or, or dressing a certain way, whether it's me or whether it's another woman. Some churches, they require you, the, the women to, to wear long dresses um, all the time. And, and have like a funny little hat over their head and and it I mean and it almost becomes law it almost becomes like this that's what you have to do that's what needs to be done in the church now I understand there's certain different interpretations about you know what the Bible says but when it becomes when that becomes more important than what the Bible actually says it's it's dangerous it becomes legalistic I think it's therefore important that we examine our own hearts. We examine ourselves and our motives when it comes to how we interact with other churches, with other believers especially, that may not do church the way we do them. Especially if you grew up in this kind of environment, in this kind of setting. Again, it's very easy, again, to go to a different church and say, man, you guys are, man, we do it better because we do it like this. Again, it's, we have to be careful with that. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans 12 tells us that the church is one body with many members that serve different functions. The bond that we all share, and again, I'm talking about the universal church here, the bond that we all share is the blood of Christ that covers us and the spirit of God that's within us. Paul said in Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the spirit with the peace that binds us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope in your calling, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. Now, I may disagree, or you may disagree with the method of how people do things or how a church does things, but as long as that church teaches and practices the repentance and forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ, and their ultimate aim is just to glorify God, then as Romans 14 says, who am I to stand in judgment of those believers in that church? You know, inside a family, and you know, those of us in, in, in my family could agree that there are going to be disagreements. You know, there are going to be disagreements with how things are being done and how things ought to be done. You know, I think, you know, we should discipline my, the kids one way, and Robin may think they need to be disciplined in another way. But, but regardless of those differences, what binds us together is just the love that we have towards each other. The fact that we're taking care of each other, the fact that we, we're, we're living under one household and we are looking out for each other's interests. Again, I may disagree with the method of, I may disagree with the method with how a different church does things or how a church down the street does things, but, but if they're believers in Christ, if they do, if they preach the gospel and if they love their Lord, the Lord with all their hearts and they're bringing people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then man, I should treat them as my brothers. I should treat them as my sisters in the Lord. What we, ought to, what, what we ought to stand against, though, like we see Jesus doing here, is when those methods contradict, disregard, and invalidate the Word of God. That's why. That's why it's so important for you guys to understand your Bible. Understand what you believe in and understand what's written here. If you don't know it, if you don't understand it, then yeah, you know, it's going to be easy for people to come and say, oh, you got to do this, do it this, because the Bible says, you know, that, um, because the Bible says that wives ought to submit to their husbands, then, you know, everywhere, every time I walk to the inside the house, your wife should be bowing down before you. You know, that's the kind of mentality, if you don't careful, if you're not careful about, um, if you don't understand what that's, it could be easy for someone to, to just mess that whole chapter up, mess that whole verse up, misinterpret it. That's why we have to understand what it says. We have to know what, what God is trying to tell us through that, through that particular passage or through that particular verse. 
You have to understand your Bible. Let's continue. Starting in verse, resuming in verse 6. He answered them. This is after they were done talking, after they were done accusing him of not keeping with the tradition of elders. In verse 6 he says, he answers them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the traditions of men. He also said to them, you completely invalidate God's command in order for you to maintain your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of your father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition you have handed down, and you do so, and you do many other similar things. Jesus had a remarkable way of making the most of any situation. And as we see here on this occasion, not only does he give an appropriate response, but he also revealed an important fact to everyone that was listening. If you look at verses 6 to 13 carefully, Jesus responds to their question, to the question in these three ways. And, I, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes just amazed by how he responds when people are criticizing him. And we see, and we see, we've already seen several examples of that throughout these first uh, six chapters. But he responds to them in these three ways. He calls them out in their hypocrisy. He explains their hypocrisy to them. He shows their hypocrisy by showing an example of what that looks like. And then he, well, and then he shows them uh, an example of what that hypocrisy of their hypocrisy by using an example. Now let me explain what I mean. The first thing Jesus does is call out these Pharisees and scribes in their hypocrisy. In the original language, the word hypocrisy was actually, actually meant an actor in a play that pretended to be somebody else. He basically played a part on a stage play and that's who he was on that, on that stage, but in real life, there was somebody else. So in a sense, what he's saying here in verse, in verse 6, he's saying, Isaiah prophesies correctly about you, you actors, as it is written, and then he goes on to, and then he quotes a verse that they probably already had memorized from Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 29, 13, and basically applying it to them. Let me read that first part, part. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in verse 7, it says, they worship me in vain, teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Man, he just, he went at them. And then it was, again, it's, it's, it's crazy because these were, again, the top religious men of that time. But I can't help but to wonder if God would say something similar 
about us. Whether God would say something similar about you. I'll tell you what I mean. Would he say they attend church, but their hearts are far from me? They read their Bibles, but their hearts are far from me. They pray eloquently, but their heart is far from me. They contribute money, but their heart is far from me. They do ministry in the church and serve, but their heart is far from me. Yeah, they love to sing and they have beautiful voices, but their heart is far from me. They talk to others about Jesus, but their heart is far from me. Is that what you know, God would say about you? Is that what God would say about us here that are sitting here? That's why, again, I, 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 we have to examine ourselves. We have to see where we're at. So there, in the, again, in those two verses, he, uh, in the beginning there, he, ex- he calls them out in their hypocrisy. The next thing he does in verses 8 and 9 is explain two things they've done that makes them hypocrites. Firstly, they disregarded, the God, they disregarded God's command by keeping the traditions of men. In other words, it was becoming more important to hold on to these traditions than to understand the value of God's command. Anytime anyone ever does this, if you ever see anyone do this, or even if you start doing this, it's a form of legalism. And secondly, he tells them, you completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your traditions. In other words, what Jesus was telling them was that they had made God's command practically worthless by demanding that these traditions be followed. They were disregarding it. They were saying, you know what? Um, Yeah, you know, the, the oral law was becoming more important than what the actually written law had to say. You have, to, you have to do this and you have to do that. You had to wash your hands ceremonially because that's the way, you know, we've always done it. Invalidating, disregarding what the Word of God has to say. And anytime anyone ever does this too, it's also a form of legalism. And that's what you have to be careful about. Not only in, in, in how others may want you to do things or when you're invited, when you are, do attend another church or even for yourselves. You have to be careful about that too. It's a form of legalism. Finally, in verses 10 to 13, Jesus quotes the fifth commandment and Leviticus 20 verse nine and uses it as an example of how their hypocrisy was evident. See, the Pharisees had a tradition where, whereby whatever they declared to be korban or dedicated belonged to God. While this practice sounded pious, in actuality it provided a way for them to circumvent all charitable giving, even to their own parents, who they are commanded to honor. So do you see what I mean? It's, it's as if, I needed your help, Anthony. Or I needed, one of my kids needed, needed my help. 
and I said, hey, you know, can I, can I borrow 10, 20 bucks? I, you know, I ran out of gas. And they tell me, you know what, I can't, because this money I have in my pocket has been dedicated to God, and, and that's more important. You know, and what Jesus is saying is that what, this, what you do there is invalidate. It, yeah, it sounds good that you're dedicated to God, but what you have actually done is invalidate and um, circumvented the fact that the Bible says to honor your parents. Now, again, I'm not going to, you know, as, as a parent, I'm not going to take anything away from you that, you know, is important to you that you need. But still, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of the heart. What are you actually doing? By doing this, again, they were disregarding and invalidating God's command to honor your father and, and mother. I wonder what Jesus said concerning the traditions of our modern American Christianity. The test for any church practice, from baptism to communion, from tithing to missions, is threefold. These are the, these are the things you need to look for. Again, a test for any church practice. Is it exhibited in the life of Christ? Are those traditions and practices exhibited in the life of Christ? Does it extend into the book of Acts? And is it expounded in the epistles? If our traditional practices as a church isn't seen in these three things, then we shouldn't be dogmatic. And what I mean by that is we, we shouldn't be so hung up on making sure that their practice or that you know it's, it's just as important as, as preaching the gospel. We shouldn't be dogmatic about it or insist that others practice it. If our tradition, I'll give you another example. If our tradition is, um, we have donuts in the back, you know, and you know, for, for us to have, you know, afterwards, even if you wanted to have one right now, it wouldn't be a big deal. But, um, but if you go to a church and they don't have and they don't have donuts in the back, you shouldn't be like, you know what? This is how we do things. That you know, you guys are wrong for not having donuts. What's up? You know, I mean, it should. It, it, should, it shouldn't be hung up about it. It's, it's no big deal. Okay, we have to pay attention to what's to our hearts. Let's go to uh, verse 14. Move on. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. When he went to the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. As a result, he had made all foods clean. Then he said, what comes out of a person, that defiles him. From within, the, out of the heart, out of the person's heart, 
come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Knowing that these religious men couldn't get the point because of their stubbornness, Jesus turns his attention away from them, from our, you know, giving them a reason, explaining things to them. He then turns his attention to the crowds that were listening, and he tells them the point that he's trying to make. And again, that he says, nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. After he's done saying that, he takes, you know, he goes, we're told that he goes inside the house, away from the crowd. More than likely, he went inside this house to have a meal with his disciples. And by this time, the disciples had gotten used to asking Jesus to elaborate on what that parable meant, or what he was trying to say. But before he begins to explain it, it appears that his, you know, he, he gives him, he asks him a rhetorical question. It appear, and what it appears he's saying by that rhetorical question in the beginning of verse 18 is that, man, by this point, they should have had more of a grasp of what he was saying in those parables. By this time, they should have, should have clicked faster. It should have just been, they should have kind of been, they should have understood it, understood it a little bit more. Yeah, if they wanted an explanation, they wanted, you know, he would be happy to give it, but it should have just clicked a little bit more. So instead of getting angry, instead of getting upset, instead of just going off on them and saying, you know what, forget, I'm not going to explain anything to you. You're, you guys are on your own. You guys are event will eventually get it. With the love and patience of a loving father and mother teaching their child a valuable lesson, he begins to reveal to them the meaning of verse 15. He explained that whatever it was that made any food unclean wasn't that it wasn't what defiled the person. Because as verse 19 tells us, food doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach. And what goes into the stomach is eventually eliminated, eventually goes away. What actually defiles a person, what makes a person unclean, is what comes out of the heart. What comes out of the heart of a person. And it's one of our main themes here again is like, what's in your heart? What's in there? Jesus then lists 13 examples of unclean characteristics that come out of, a, out of the heart of a person. Let me read those again. And, and then as I do, ask yourself, is this what's in your heart? Evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, lying, basically, 
promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. He gives those 13 characteristics, sinful characteristics that lay within the heart of a person. Those things, as they come out of him, as they come out of the heart, that's what defiles them. That's what makes them unclean. All these evil things, he tells them in verse 23, come from within and defile a person. If you look at verses 18 and 23, what Jesus tells his disciples revolutionizes two important concepts they've always been taught to believe. The first one is found in the end of verse 19, where Mark tells us that Jesus was now implying that all foods were clean. You see, the Jews, according again to the written law, not the oral law, according to the written law, there were Jews were only allowed to eat certain kinds of food. There was they had certain dietary restrictions. You know, a couple of them was they couldn't eat pork and they couldn't eat uh, certain types of, of fish and they couldn't eat certain types of um, birds, you know, uh, fowl, basically. There were certain type of restrictions they, they, uh, they had. So now Jesus, as we see Mark saying there at the end of verse 19, he had, now Jesus had, um, was now implying that all foods were clean. Which was something which, would, which was reiterated to Peter, if you remember, which was reiterated to Peter in a powerful way in Acts chapter 11. Now in that story in Acts chapter 11, Peter had a vision of a blanket coming down from heaven. And I won't get into the whole story, but essentially what, what God was reminding him is that, man, get up and eat. And you know they were basically what, this, what it was filled with was all kinds of unclean animals. But what it was two things God was showing him was that one of them was that all animals are clean; he can now get up and eat. And the other thing was that he was going to basically minister to a Gentile. Again, that's a whole different story. I, I can't really get into it all right now. But man, he showed him in a powerful way. He reiterated that, I'm sorry, he reiterated that point in a powerful way. The second revolutionary concept Jesus revealed is found in verses 20 to 23, where Jesus essentially says that food, that food doesn't defile a person. It was sinful behaviors that come from the heart of a person was what defiles him. So by saying this, by making this statement, Jesus was making the point was that there wasn't enough religious works that a person can do that will be able to cleanse their sinful heart. There's not enough. You can wash your hands all you want. You can wash the pots and the utensils and you can watch the, wash the, the, the dining couches all you want. You can do all these things. You can go to church and, you know, and sing songs and be involved in ministry. But if your heart is filled with these things, you're still defiled. There isn't enough religious works 
that can clean that heart. There is absolutely nobody, nobody, that can go through every single one of those sinful behaviors in verses 21 and 23, 21 and 22, and say they've never done any of them, or none of them have ever been in their heart. Just like the, the commandments, no one can stand here, no one can sit here and say they've never broken one of the commandments. We've all been guilty, and if you can say that, then you're a liar, and that's one of the commands, and you know, it's, you've already broken the command there. And look at those, look at those sinful behaviors. I can, you know, I can sit here and say, man, yeah, I've done that and I felt that and and I've, you know, I've done uh, expressed that and we've all been guilty. We've all done these. All these things are um, have been in our and at what time or another in our hearts. When Paul says in Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He means everybody. Everyone. Like the disciples, maybe there are some, and there's maybe some people out there who have been led to believe that if you go to a certain church, if you follow their customs and traditions and do the things they want the way they, that if you do the things the way they want you to do them, then you are spiritually unclean and have nothing to worry about. The truth is, is that Jesus teaches us here that as long as these behaviors are expressed through the way you live, all those things that you were told you had to do to make you clean, in reality, they don't. Jesus made it clear that the real issue is not external. It's not the outside things. It's not the outside things that, that make you clean. It's not eating with dirty hands. It's not driving in the freeway and seeing a billboard with you know, a half-naked chick that makes you unclean. It's what's in the heart. It's what's inside. Are you Seeing, are you allowing these things to come in and shape who you, and shape your heart? Are you allowing these things, these outward things, to come in, whether it's music or movies or um, all these things that the world has to offer? Is it in there and shaping your heart? Is it becoming? Is it dictating what's you know, the actions of your heart? Again, these these behaviors. And what eventually happens is that it, it, as it continues to dwell in there, they, they'll eventually be expressed through your behaviors, through your words. I ask again, what's in there? What's in your heart? Again, it's not a matter of external. It's the real issue is not external, but internal. In other words, it's not the washing of hands, but the purity of the, heart, of the heart that matters. Our lesson today centers around having a proper understanding of what a person believes and why he believes it. These scribes and Pharisees flaunted their self-righteousness. 
they flaunted it because they rigorously, rigorously maintained their oral law and traditions. But inwardly, inside, their evil thoughts and actions, their deceit, their pride and foolishness was evident, about, was evident by their contempt and their antagonism towards Jesus. Jesus, however, revealed that purity isn't obtained from outward behaviors and attitudes. Again, you can, you can come to church every day of your life, but if your heart isn't in the right place, it, it doesn't matter. You're a good, you know, you may, you may be a great singer and you may be good at even teaching the Bible, but if your heart isn't there, it's, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. You know, you, you need to have the right heart doing these things. Purity, purity is obtained by the cleansing of the heart from sinful behaviors and attitudes. Let me ask you, what would Jesus say about you? If he sat here and looked you straight in the eyes and asked you, where are you? What's in your heart? Actually, what would he, what would he say about you? Would he see a self-righteous person who is outwardly acting like one of his followers? but inwardly has a heart filled with, with sin? Or would he see a person whose attitudes and behaviors are the result of a pure heart that has been cleansed by the blood he shed on the cross? Whether you're aware of it or not, you don't have to continue playing the part. You don't have to continue to pretend to be a Christian. You can be a Christian. You can be a follower of Christ. You don't have to play the part anymore to pretend to be something that you're not. God sees you. You can't hide from him. You, can't, you can fool me and you can fool everybody else around, but he sees your heart. He knows you can't hide it from him. He knows what's going on in there. In James 4, in James 4, 8, he says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your hand, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. And in 1 John 1, 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like I said, God sees, your, sees the heart of every person and knows everything that's within it because nothing is hidden from his sight. There is no sin that he can't forgive. There's... There's no sin that he can't say, you know what, I, that's, that's too great, that's too big, no way I can never forgive that. There's no sin he can't forgive because Jesus Christ died for every single one of them. So there he is. 
He's standing at the door of every person waiting to see what you're going to do. He's there standing at the door of your heart waiting for you to hand it over to him so that he can cleanse it from all the sin that's within it. He wants to give you a pure heart. He wants to take that heart that's full, that may be full of evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. He wants to take that heart that's full of that and just wash it. Make it, he wants to make it clean. And he can do that. And he has done that by Jesus dying on the cross. His blood is what, just like the song said, it cleanses, makes us white as snow. We have a tendency to just blow these things aside and say, you know what, I'll do it later, I'll figure it out later, and You just never know if there's going to be later, if there's going to be another tomorrow for you, if there's going to be another five to ten minutes for you. Can you honestly say that you've been forgiven? Will you accept that offer of forgiveness that he offers? And will you allow him to purify your heart from within? You know, I have this image here, and it's, it's a heart, but it's being corrupted. That's what I see there. You can either see it that way, or you can see the work of Christ glowing and beaming and being purified. I remember a time when my heart was like that, where it was becoming to be, it was, it was getting clouded by the sins that we see here. But the moment I surrendered, the moment I rededicated my life to Christ, all those things started I was being I was being forgiven for for all those things. Again, it's not the outside in that makes you pure. It's the inside out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do we come before you and And ask you that you help us examine our hearts. Help us examine where we're at. Are we being hypocrites? Are we acting one way in order to appease those around us that our hearts are far from you? Are we worshiping, praying to you, but our lips are far from you? Are we actually, are we
dishonoring you, Lord. Lord, I ask that you examine us, Lord. And help us to see. Open our eyes, Lord. Show us those things we just don't want to look at. That is it's just too hard to see. But we want to be honest with you. We want to just be, we don't want to deceive anybody. We don't want to deceive you. We want to take off these masks and just be real with you. Lord, if there, there are any, if there is any of those sins within us, come in and purify it, Lord. Come in and wash it away. And we have, and if we have these uncontrollable thoughts and urges and Lord, I ask that you come and change that, heal it, Lord. Show us the the source of of those of those sins, Lord. Because we want to live a life of joy. We want to live the life that you've promised us, and you that you want to give us. Make our hearts pure. Make it new, Lord. If you're listening or watching and and you don't know right now where you stand, you don't know if you'll have, if you don't have that assurance that if you were to die right now that you'll go to heaven because of your heart and what's going on and, and you've claimed to be a Christian your entire life, but your heart again is far from it and you're ready to just surrender that heart you're ready to to give that heart over to Jesus just pray this prayer in your heart and ask the Lord Lord forgive me for my sins I'm sorry I broken your commands I ask right now that you come into my heart and fill me I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I believe that he died and rose to give me eternal life receive the gift that you've offered and I lay everything down before him before the cross fill me with your spirit and give me a new heart so that I can live completely for you thank you for forgiving me 
and thank you for welcoming me in. God, I do. I pray for each one of those that each person that prayed that prayer and, and that you'll give them that new life that they've been searching for. Give them the forgiveness that they've been searching for. They've been yearning for, Lord. And as I said, just take us in, Lord. Bring us to a deeper understanding of you. You're an amazing God, and you're a wonderful God, and we praise and adore you. Bless everyone here, Lord. Protect them. Heal them. Watch over them. Watch over their families. And also those who are watching or listening. Come soon. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.